Um, Daniel chapter one is where we're going to go. You know, when I was a kid, one of the things that I loved to do was to collect Michael Jordan basketball cards. And so anytime I would mow my grandparents' yard or mow someone in the neighborhood's yard or got money for my birthday or for Christmas, I'd set that money aside. And my parents would, would take me to the local card store in Murray, Kentucky called The Dugout. And they would drop me off there for literally for hours. And, and I knew the owners and, and they would come out and they would show me all the new cards that, that had come in. And I would just sit there and soak it in. And I just, I loved just collecting these cards. And so, um, you know, I grew up and for about 20 years, I didn't even think about my Michael Jordan cards. Didn't cross my mind. You know, they sat in my parents' attic and then my parents were cleaning out their house. And so it got moved to my attic and, you know, just this box of cards that I knew were there, but just really didn't think too much about it. And just kind of thought, you know, this is cool as a kid. I'll hold on to these. Well, about a year ago, I was having breakfast with a friend of mine. He's a part of our church family. His name's Joel. And somehow we started talking about um, basketball cards, in particular, Michael Jordan cards. He's like, hey, dude, they're actually pretty hot right now. They're high. Prices are high on them. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, you should look into it. So I go home and, you know, I get these cards, this box of Michael Jordan cards out of my attic and, and my kids are seeing them. They're like, dad, these are awesome. My son's like, dad, can I have these cards? I'm like, no, I've seen the way you treat your Pokemon cards. You're not getting my, you know, Michael Jordan cards. You're not getting all the inheritance. And so um, I, I pull out these cards. And what I realized is that when I was a kid, I took really good care of these cards. Like every single card, it was put inside this little plastic sleeve. And then it was put inside of a hard plastic sleeve. And on every single card that I kept, I literally took the price tag off of it and put it on the case of the card. So I know exactly how much I paid for the cards. I know I'm type A extreme. I've been that way my whole life. And, and so I, I'm, I'm looking through these cards and, and I find the most expensive card. There's a card in there that I paid $50 for. Now, just for the record, I never paid full price for the cards. Knew the owners, they always cut me a deal. But I'm like, I'm gonna find the most expensive card and just see you know, if it's gone up in value, if it stayed the same, if nothing's happened. So I go on eBay and I see that this card that I'd paid $50 for as a kid just recently sold for over $300. And I'm like, dude, I'm gonna be rich. This is awesome. And that didn't pan out, obviously. That was like sort of the, the highlight of the, the, the cards for me. But what I realized is, is that there was so much value and I had no clue. This just box of cards that was sitting in my attic with so much value. And, and honestly, that's just kind of how I feel about the book of Daniel. You know, if, if you were to ask me, you know, where is Daniel kind of on your reading list and your priority list? A couple of years ago, I very rarely read through Daniel. If I'm doing a daily Bible reading plan, I'll read through it. But if I'm kind of in between reading plans or don't have something to read, you know, I'll so often flip over to the Gospels and read about Jesus, or I'll flip open to the Psalms and, and just get a, a good, like, cry from the heart about how to talk to God. But Daniel is not the place that I often went to. But a couple years ago, back in 2020, the elders, a couple of us on staff were sitting down and we were studying through the scriptures and, and we found Daniel. We stumbled upon Daniel and I realized my eyes were open that there is so much value in this book. It's like a box of cards that sits in the attic. And I don't know if maybe Daniel's a priority for you, but my guess is that for most of us, it's like a box that sits in the attic that we have no idea the value that, that rests in it. And so, you know, we are going to be jumping into Daniel for the next eight weeks. And you're like, why Daniel? You know, we just came out of a series on Philippians and Daniel's not right after Philippians in the Bible. So it's like, why in the world are we, are we going here? And I want to just kind of share a couple of, of reasons why we're, we're kind of pushing into Daniel chapter or to the book of Daniel. The first is this, 
I believe that Daniel contains timeless truths about how to live faithfully to the Lord, especially when facing resistance. That there are some timeless truths in here that I think are going to be so valuable for the time that we find ourselves in. The second reason that we're digging into the book of Daniel, number two, is that it equips us that we can better understand what God is doing in the world and what he will do as the day of Jesus' return to earth draws nearer. I wonder how many of us come in this room and it's like, hey, if you had the opportunity to know more specifically what God is doing and what he will do, are you curious? And if you are, it's good for you because we're going to really dive into this. The third why that we're going to be jumping into the book of Daniel is I believe that it's such a beautiful picture of the activity of God in our lives right now that it paints this beautiful picture of his awareness of us and what is going on in our lives. And it also helps elevate our view of his sovereignty and authority and power to accomplish his will. This is why we're, amen. That's why we're heading into the book of Daniel. Um, I want to give us a little bit of context for the book of Daniel. Um, So it consists of 12 chapters, and the first six chapters are primarily about Daniel's personal life. And so with the exception of Daniel chapter two, this is stories about he and, and his best friends and what God is doing in their life and through them. And so the first six chapters are about his personal life. The, the next six chapters, verses seven through 12, are about Daniel's prophetic life, dreams and visions. And my guess is if you've ever read through Daniel, the first six chapters, you read it and you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you get to the seventh chapter and you're like, what, what am I reading here? Like, And what I've learned is, man, I think that through all of this teaching, but especially through chapter 7 through 12, man, it's going to stretch us. It's going to shape us in, I think, some really significant ways. A little bit more context for um, the book of Daniel. It takes place in Babylon, um, which is modern-day Iraq. Um, It happened in the year 605 BC, the Israelites or another name for them, the Hebrew people or the Jewish people, um, had literally been a nation for hundreds of years up until this point in the journey. Um, Some familiar um, names, Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, guys like Moses and Joshua, and you get into the book of Judges that God raises up these people to to literally steward and lead the Hebrew people. Um, They don't want just want leaders, they want kings, they want to be like everybody else, and so God raises up Saul, God raises up David, God raises up Solomon, God raises up um, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all of these other kings. And so the nation of Israel, where we're picking up in the story, has literally existed for hundreds of years. This is not a, a new thing. It's not an overnight thing that there's history, that there's heritage, that there is so much that has been already evolved around the nation of Israel, the people of God. And so where we find ourselves in the story, God comes to his people and he looks at their heart. And what he sees is that from their heart, they have drifted away from him. Although there's so much history, although that God has worked in their ancestors' life and in their own personal life, what is true of the people is that, is that their hearts are far from God. And so God comes to his people. God doesn't just act and, and then expect us to figure out what he's doing. No, God speaks prophetically. He speaks the future so that his people know what is coming. And so he speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah delivers a message to the people of Israel. If you guys do not reform your ways, if you do not repent, 
God is going to send you into captivity into, under the nation of Babylon, under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is the book of Jeremiah. Go and read it. It'll give you a different lens for, for what you're reading. And so God, in his heart, is telling his people, please, repent, 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 reform your ways, change your thinking, change your living, come back to me with your whole heart. If you don't, for 70 years, you're not going to get to enjoy the freedom and the autonomy of living in the land of Israel. You're going to be enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar. And so the people hear the words and like so often we do, we just ignore the words of God. But because the Lord is a truth teller, he delivers on what he said. His people get delivered into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls are destroyed. Temple is taken down. The majority of the people are deported living under the throne and the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is where Daniel chapter one picks up. Starting in verse one, it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so Nebuchadnezzar, what we discover, he's a really sharp dude. His desire is world domination, to literally conquer the world. He's not just content being king of Babylon. How do we know that? Because he goes and ransacks Israel. And so he has world dominance on his mind. And what you discover is that he's really sharp. He doesn't just come and annihilate the Jewish people. What he does is he identifies the sharpest and the smartest, those who come from a really religious or from a really um, wealthy intellectual background, and he, and, he, and he brings them into his service to be his consultants. I mean, he's sharp. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when this story takes place, they were young teenagers. Don't think grown men. These are 13, 14, 15-year-old boys. Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon comes in literally enslaving them, take them from their families, literally come in. They, they take them from their homes. They take them from everything that is known and everything that is normal. Could you imagine the devastation of this, the pain? Some of you can. This has been maybe part of your story. These guys are separated from everything that's familiar, find themselves living in captivity. And yet what you realize is that there was some favor and, and some privilege that had been extended to these guys that weren't given to all the other people that had been enslaved. And so what you discover is that, is that slavery for them looked like sitting at the chalkboard and learning. Learning the language, learning the literature that for three years they were, they were soaking in the practices and the ways of Babylon. It wasn't just education for them. Another place of privilege that had been given to them was that it says that they were given food or they were given a seat at the king's table. 
I don't know about you, but you think about the, the nature of what they're feeling here. Devastated from being away from home and family, and yet they're sitting at the king's table. These guys' lives have been flipped upside down, and yet they've been given some privileges. Let's keep going. Verse 7 says, the chief official gave them new names. Changed their names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. We're going to unpack this in just a minute. But Daniel, listen to this, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So what is, wait, what's going on here? I'm going to explain this, but I want to just give us the, the first kind of big idea, the big takeaway from Daniel chapter one, what we learned from he and his friends about what it looks like to honor God in a culture that doesn't. I mean, the first thing that we learn is that these guys were marked by a true devotion to the Lord. They were marked by a true devotion to the Lord. And so it says they didn't want to defile themselves. And we're like, what does that mean? Well, um, in particular, God had given his people some commands about things that they could and that they couldn't eat. And I don't want to dig into the, the why today about what those things were and why God said that. There's a whole other sermon for, for that. But what I want us to, to take away from today is that there were things on the king's table that the Lord had told his people many, 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 many years ago, hey, I don't want you to eat those things. And I want you to notice this, what you see in Daniel and his friend's heart. It says they were resolved not to devile themselves. I think this is incredibly significant because here they are. They're away from family. Uh, another way of thinking about this is that they were away from accountability. And here they find themselves, and, and although life is, is terrible for, for their family back home and other people who are enslaved in different ways, and yet they find themselves sitting at this place of privilege, and, and they're given this opportunity to eat this food, to do this thing that God had told them not to do, and it's like, what in the world are they going to do? And I love it says that they refused. They refused to defile themselves. Guys, think about Think about this with me. Let's bring it down to the ground. Think about all the things that we're tempted to do, all the attitudes that we, are attempted, that we are tempted to take on when we don't have anyone watching over us. When we have full autonomy, when we have full authority, when there's no human accountability, when we feel like no one is watching. You know, think about the, the mantras that we take on. Man, when in Rome, or what happens in Vegas, or think about it like this, man, when, when, when you've been given the authority, the autonomy, and you live with a roommate, but your roommate's out of the house, and it's just you and your girlfriend. And you know the Lord's spoken some things about holiness. Or you think about it like this, man, you, you, you're alone, and, and, and no one will know if you get on that site. Get on that app, send that picture, say that thing about them behind their back. Guys, you think about all the attitudes and the things that we do when we feel like no one is watching and Daniel and his friends have this opportunity where really no one 
No one that is over them, no one that has been walking with them. These are young teenage guys they're talking about here. And what I love is that Daniel and his friends, they lived out of their convictions. They didn't, they didn't care who, who was watching or who wasn't watching. You know why? Because they were living for the Lord. And I was just asking myself this week, man, where does that kind of conviction come from? How do you get that? How do you instill that? How do you grow that and cultivate that in your heart? And the second thing that I wanna look at this morning for what it looks like to honor the Lord in a culture that doesn't is that I believe that these guys, number two, were put on a path towards the Lord. And this isn't something that they chose to do. It was actually something that was done for them. But I think there's a lot of significance in this, you know, for their parents or their families or whoever it was that raised them, gave them specific intentional names for what they wanted their boys to grow up and to be. So all of their names had spiritual significant meaning. The name Daniel, it means God is my judge. The name Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. The name name Mishael means there is no one like the God of Israel. The name Azariah means Yahweh has helped or Yahweh will help. You see, these guys were marked at birth by their parents. They were put on a path towards the Lord. And I I just thinking this week, man, for, for those of us who you grew up in a home and your parents prioritized you knowing the Lord, Man, if you grew up in a home and, and your parents, man, they, they honored the scriptures. They taught you to, to pray. They, they taught you to worship. They, they took you to be with the body of Christ. Man, if this is your story, my encouragement to you is honor your parents and your families. Thank them. Of course, they didn't do everything right. You know what? You're not doing everything right in your life, and you won't do everything right in your life. But man, if your parents put you on the path, seriously, this afternoon, thank them. Some of you, this is not your story. You weren't put on the path to, to know Jesus at birth. You weren't given some spiritual name as a kid. You know, In fact, you're a first-generation Christian. No one else in your family even knows and walks with Jesus. And if you're a first-generation Christian, let me encourage you with this. Man, think about how amazing it is that God used other people to get you on the path. That God in all of his wisdom and all of his love for you, he saw that your parents missed it. You know, the way that this thing is supposed to work is that as a parent, you fall deeply in love with Jesus. I mean, you, you love him and you don't hold back from him and, and, and you give your whole heart to him. And then when you have kids, you pass that love down to your kids. You pass down the heart, you pass down the ways, and then they pass it down. That's the way that God intended generational faithfulness. But he knows that that's not some of your story. Your parents missed it. And I love what you see in God is because he doesn't just look at you and go, you know what? Well, your parents missed it. So are you. No, he sent. Think about for, 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 for you guys who you didn't have your parents to put you on the path. Think about all the ways that God used other people to get you on the path. Maybe it's your best friend. And they were a nuisance because they invited you to church every single week for years And you're like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church. And that one week you finally said, yeah, I want to go to church. And the Lord showed up and encountered you. For some of you, it wasn't a best friend. For some of you, man, it was a neighbor or a coach or a teacher or a mentor. And just because your parents didn't put you on the path, God used someone else to put you on the path. 
Thank them. I believe that part of the reason they were marked by a devotion to the Lord, that they could live out of integrity and in a culture that didn't honor the Lord is because they were put on the path. Guys, don't underestimate what God can do through someone who who helps people take steps on the path. And so if you're raising biological kids, man, put them on the path towards the Lord. If, if you don't have biological kids or adoptive kids or foster kids, if, if, if you don't have kids at all, man, don't underestimate the way that God's gonna use you to, to raise up spiritual kids. You're like, what are you talking about? Man, if, if you help someone come to know Jesus, you are playing a significant part in helping them mature. It's incredibly significant. Don't underestimate what God will do to, to, through someone who's willing to be used to help others get on the path towards the Lord. The third thing that I want us to see this morning, and I love this idea, this point, I can say that about my own sermons, I love this point, is is that they chose to live into their most true identity, not the one that was given to them by others. So here's what you're gonna see in the story is is that uh, Ashpenaz and the people of Babylon tried to literally give them new names. They were trying to strip them of their identity. How applicable. Because I really believe that, that we all come to this point. In fact, we come to it over and over again where we have to make the choice. Are we going to be people who live out of the identity of what God says of us and what God has done for us? Or are we going to be people who live out of an identity about what other people tell us and what we tell ourselves? Think about these words, what the Lord looks at us and he says, This is what's most true of you. You are worth the death of the Son of God. How much do you matter? You matter enough that Jesus Christ died for you. That's how much you matter to the Father. You matter to him. Heaven's best was given for you. Not an angel, not a servant, the Son. You matter to God. You, 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 you were made to know him, to know his voice, to walk with him. He desires to spend all of eternity with you, to share everything that he has with you. He wants to work through you, to guide your life, and to work through you to bless other people's lives. This is who you are. You are known by God. You are loved by God. But you think about all the identities given to us by others, things that the enemy tells us, things that we tell ourselves. How many of us come in this morning and and if we're being honest, we don't really feel like sons and daughters who are wanted by God, we feel like failures. I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but I go, how many of you this morning, you come in and you go, man, my identity is that I'm not wanted. I'm, I'm a disappointment. I don't have what it takes. How many of you get in this morning and you go, man, I'm not smart enough or I'm not tall enough or I'm not thin enough or I'm not funny enough? How many of you have been put in boxes by other people, man, where you're just the jock or you're the ditzy one or you're the funny one? How many of us come in this morning we feel like we're always second place? We're always a bridesmaid. 
How many of us come in this morning and our identity is so attached to our job, to what we do, to our degree, or to being so-and-so's son or daughter or sibling? How many of us look at our lives and we go, man, I'm not like other boys or I'm not like other girls, which means I must be a girl. How many of us this morning come in with the identity of, man, you've done too much? You've gone too far? You've been gone for too long? You see, the world and the enemy, just like Ash Penaz, tries to put these other identities on us. And what we believe about ourselves, what we receive from, from God and from others actually shapes the way that we live. You know, one of the things that we're teaching our kids if four kids, is that just because someone says something to you or calls you a name, doesn't mean you have to receive it. And we look at our kids and we're trying to instill identity in them. Like, hey, you matter. And you're strong and you're smart and you're funny and you are lovable and you are talented. And if kids come along and they tell you that, that, that you're not wanted and you're not fun and you don't belong, you do not have to receive that. You see, Daniel and his friends, they teach us what it looks like. Man, people can put labels on us, but for us to be people who know who we are, we are known and loved by the Most High God. The fourth thing that we learned this morning from Daniel and his friends about how to honor God in a culture that doesn't is that they didn't just accept the ungodly cultural norms, but they approached them with wisdom and tact. Read with me in verse eight. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told him, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. And so I love what Daniel does. He operates with such wisdom. He learns that, that they're going to have to eat this food, and it's put before them, and and, and he doesn't sit at the table and make this big scene. He doesn't go, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar? This isn't pleasing to the Lord. And what you're doing is not pleasing to the Lord. And, and he doesn't turn the table over and make this big scene. I love what Daniel does. He privately asks his direct report. Hey, can I not eat this food? Do I have to eat this food? It's actually a matter of conviction and conscience for me. And it's pretty incredible because maybe Daniel knew that Ashpenaz had favor with him or maybe he didn't. But it's fascinating because, um, man, had the king found out about this, it could have been terrible for Daniel and his friends. What you're going to learn, what we're going to discover about Nebuchadnezzar is that he is a hothead. 
in the stories that we're going to read the next couple of weeks, if you don't do what he asks, man, he flies off the handle. He is just this, this, this self-obsessed, neurotic guy. And I go, man, if, if he found out that Daniel and his buddies go, hey, we don't want to eat your food. You know, when my wife, Courtney, makes food and, and our kids, they see it and they're like, yuck, I'm not eating that. That's disgusting. We're like, you're going to eat a triple portion because you said that, right? And we love our kids, but you think about this. There's a real risk here. This isn't just a, uh, hey, I'll have something else. No. And I love because God was working in Ash Penaz's life. He was willing to help Daniel. Made no sense. Could have got Ash Penaz in helpful, in trouble, but he was willing to help him. Guys, there are going to be times when we will be asked to do things at work. or at school, or on the PTA, or whatever it is that the circles that you're in. There are going to be times that we're going to be asked to do things that really go against the things that we know God has asked of us. And sometimes, guys, it's going to work out completely fine. Man, we'll, we'll, we'll be like Daniel and his friends, and, and we're going to go, you know what? I can't, I can't bend. I've got to stand true to, to what the Lord wants. And this is how the story ends. Look at verse 18. At the end of the time set by, Net, by the king to bring them into the service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And I'm going, guys, I just wish the whole Bible was Daniel chapter one. Like, you know, you, you face this moral dilemma and you choose to, to walk with the Lord and then you get elevated to the top place in the kingdom. And we all know that, man, that following Jesus sometimes has happened. But we also know that sometimes we choose to follow Jesus and it costs us immensely. I remember several years ago, there was a friend of mine and he worked as a mechanic in a car shop and his boss came to him one day and said, hey, I want you to start fudging the numbers. I want you to start, I want you to lie. Customers are never gonna know no one will, will ever know. It's going to be good for our business. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for all of us. And I remember him coming home and really wrestling with that, of going, hey, my, this is what my boss who writes my paycheck is asking me to do. And yet he had this conviction. I can't lie. I can't treat people that way. So he goes and he talks to his boss. Hey, I know you've asked me to do this, but I can't do it. And his boss looks at him and fires him. Guys, some of you are in a very similar situation where, I mean, you've been asked to do something and it completely goes against what the Lord has asked of you. Maybe you're not in a situation like that, but maybe you will be in life. You know, what I want to encourage us with is, man, my friend, he, he left that day and he lost his job. Man, but he left with his character. And he left with his relationship with the Lord not being hindered at all. 
there are worse things than losing your job when you choose to walk with Jesus. Guys, we will experience pressure from people. We are experiencing that. Pressure to do things and to say things and to believe things that are most certainly in flow with the culture that we're living in. Man, but we know it's against what God desires for us. Think about the things that come into our ears, man. If it feels good, do it. If it feels right, do it. If it's good for you, your truth, do it. Or this, I mean, you don't have to save sex for marriage. Or man, if your spouse isn't living up to their vows, if they're not fulfilling your desires, just divorce them, find someone who will. Or man, if you don't affirm and, and celebrate same-sex relationships, you're a bigot and you're judgmental and you're just mean. You don't understand. Or it's okay not to share with those in need. You don't have to be generous. You've worked hard. They've been lazy. You take care of you. You see, Daniel and his friends understood that that as God's people, as Israelites, they were a chosen people. A chosen people that were chosen not because they were so great, but they were chosen so that they would bless the world. And, and that blessing, that extension of blessing, it didn't change if they were living in, in, in the peace in Jerusalem or in the pain in Babylon. You see, they understood that their job as God's people was to bless the world. And I think sometimes we get really confused on what it looks like to bless the world. Good-hearted, spirit-filled, Christ-honoring people Blessing the world doesn't mean that we condone and go along with everything the world says and does. And it also doesn't mean that we just stand on the sidelines and, and shout how terrible everyone else is. Daniel and his friends, man, they understood that sometimes what it means to bless the world, especially in a culture that doesn't honor Jesus, was to live out their faith, their convictions, their devotion to the Lord in a tactful way. Guys, we are different than the culture, and we should be. But we're different from the culture for the sake of the culture. I think for too long, man, we've got into one or two ditches as a church, man. We we live into our holiness and, and we are just judgmental and we just say all kinds of terrible things to the world and the people who don't know Jesus want nothing to do with us. And the other ditch is we just completely conform <laughs> and neither way is effective. You're in the ditch on either side. And what it looks like to, to, to look different than the culture for the sake of the, the culture is that we don't elevate ourselves we don't insulate ourselves. We are among culture, but we're not like culture. 
we're among people who don't think like us and, and, and maybe come to church like us and have the same morals. And we're doing that not so we can make ourselves feel better or them to feel bad. We are around people who are different from us because we want them to experience God in us. To be drawn to Jesus, to Jesus who met you and all of your filth and sin and all of my filth and sin and forgave us. And when we look just like culture and don't say anything bad about it, or if, if we never engage with anyone or anything who's different than us, we are so ineffective. I remember one year being on this trip and we were down at this place, Panama City Beach. We went down there spring break and the whole purpose was to just meet people, to be light. I remember we met this one guy earlier in the week, and man, he was, his whole, his whole purpose of being down there that week, he was not even in college, he was much older, was to sleep as many people as he could, to stay as drunk as he could the whole week, and on the very last day, we shared, um, his, his hotel was right, his room was right beside ours, and we sat out on the, the balcony, and he started talking to us, and we're like, about our relationships, and I was engaged, or no, sorry, I wasn't engaged. I was dating someone, and the guy that I was with was just recently married, and, and he was talking to us about what we believe and about dating and girls, and we're like, yeah, we're both you know, saving ourselves to marriage. And yeah, we, we actually think like sleeping with one girl after the next is just, just not the best way to live. It's like we, we want to just be committed to one person and that person before God. And we did it in this gentle way, this loving way. It wasn't like, dude, let me tell you about all the terrible things I've been witnessing this week that you've been doing. We told him about our convictions. And it was in his sitting there with us and in us sharing our convictions that he goes, man, I've never even thought about treating a girl like that. And here's what he said, but I want that. I'm like, whoa. You see, when we actually live like Jesus for the sake of those who don't know Jesus, God will work through us. It's not on our timetable. And we don't get to decide the things that come our way, the things that God brings to us, but we get to decide how we will respond. Will we choose to be people who honor the Lord in a culture that doesn't honor the Lord? And so here in just a minute, we're gonna take communion. Communion is what we do each week. We eat a piece of bread and drink a cup of juice, and we do this to remember Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, that, that he took our punishment on the cross for our rebellion, and, and that because he did that, we receive forgiveness, we receive full acceptance into his family, that we are at peace with God, that he doesn't hang our sin over our head, hold our sin over our head. And the way that we take communion here at Ethos is that we circle up chairs and we, and we share and we process the things that God was stirring in our hearts. And so this morning, as we take communion, I wanna just invite you, hey, is, is there an opportunity before you right now to be different than culture for the sake of culture? And if there is, I encourage you to pray for courage, to pray for wisdom, to pray for tact, to know how to approach it. Others of you, maybe there's nothing right in front of you this morning, but God was stirring something in your heart. 
I encourage you to share that. What was God stirring in you? What was coming to the surface? And if you want to talk or pray, there'll be some of us that to respond, man. We'd love to talk and pray. But I want to invite us to stand, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll go and take communion. And so, Lord, thank you for my brothers and my sisters here this morning, this afternoon. Lord, I pray that anything that I said was not from you, please let it be forgotten. And I am not perfect at all. God, but you are so good. And I pray that you would allow any conviction to not turn into condemnation and not to to shift towards apathy or indifference, God, but you would let your conviction move us closer to you. And so would you speak to us in communion? Yeah, God, bring healing and help, and we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Let's go take communion now. If you wanna talk or pray, we'd love to talk and pray with you. There's Spawn Banner.